Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have University of Cincinnati Dean Neil McKinnon. Where did you go to school again, Dean? Yeah, I uh, a little, little bit of a journey. So I'm, uh, you know, if you'll tell the listeners, what you tell from my voice, I have a Canadian accent. I'm a dual citizen, so uh, my my undergrad pharmacy degree is from uh, University in Canada, Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, and then I went from there to the University of Wisconsin, did a uh, uh, hospital administrative residency and a master's in hospital pharmacy, and then down, I guess, further south, University of Florida, I uh, did a PhD and a uh, fellowship, really kind of in pharmaceutical care. So yes, yeah, so that was that was my. Uh, my kind of educational path. So you've got a, quite different experiences amongst two countries too. So that's that's pretty interesting. It makes you pretty unique amongst pharmacists here in the U.S. And you also have a pretty unique path of career that you've taken to become dean at University of Cincinnati. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, um, you know, after I finished up at Florida, I went uh, back to Canada. So I was a faculty member there for about uh, 12 and a half years. You know, I was quite involved in the profession there. I'm a past president of the King side of hospital pharmacists and did, uh, you know, kind of various sectors there. But uh, my wife's originally from Arizona, so we always thought if there was an opportunity there, we would look it out. Uh, so we moved from there to the University of Arizona. So it wasn't just kind of a climate change from, from Canada to Arizona, <laughs> but also a pretty radical change. I had kind of a, an interesting job there. I was a faculty member in a college of public health, not pharmacy. And public health is about a you know 180 from pharmacy, the way they think and do things. You know, it's about saving the planet and kind of uh, big picture thinking. And then I also was in, in state government, so not as an elected official, but directed the state office of rural health care. And certainly that gave me a, a you know quite a different perspective, I guess, on the role of advocacy and the role of pharmacists in government. So I enjoyed that role, but then, you know, kind of missed pharmacy, I guess. And so I've been here as dean at the University of Cincinnati uh, in my seventh uh, year. Yeah, that's a that's quite a path to become dean there, and quite a yeah. quite a good path for this podcast since it involves politics and pharmacy. So I'm I'm glad to have you on today. And, <laughs> sure, sure. And one thing I really liked is kind of the advocacy work you've been doing, especially here in Ohio. You've really been active in the political sphere around pharmacy, not just with Dean, but also in recent months, you shared online that you met with Governor Mike DeWine, who's obviously the governor of Ohio and pretty important and a pretty decent supporter of pharmacy from everything I know. And you also met with some other senators like Matt Dolan, who helped put provider status out there for us in the state, which is awesome. Can't thank him enough for that. I can't wait to see how that starts to develop. On top of those meetings with some top political brass in Ohio, you had several publications, grants, kind of around regulatory approaches to helping improve community pharmacy and even the use of naloxone and improving its access. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on kind of what happened there and and (laughs) what happened and kind of how you got all these awesome meetings with these people? Yeah, yeah. And I would say, you know, it's kind of more of an evolution over time. I would certainly, you know, a lot of it, I think, probably goes back to my experience in government and in Arizona. So just for example, every state has a state office of rural health care. So there's 50 state offices. I was the only pharmacist to direct a state office. And actually very few actually are health professionals. It's more kind of bureaucrats in, in those roles. But, you know, it was really interesting, Eric, because it kind of it really gave me an insider's perspective on how state government operates and just so, for example, my office, when we were in Arizona, we were doing things like recruiting physicians to rural communities, helping rural hospitals survive financially, working with first responders and emergency medical services, uh, county public health officers. And this is kind of hurts me as a, as a pharmacist to say, but, you know, pharmacy was pretty much invisible in all of that. And so really, pharmacists were not part really of almost any of those discussions. I was usually the only pharmacist in the room 
And, you know, I, I kind of left that kind of kind of changed it. It really did sadden me because I know pharmacists have a key role to play in all those things. Right. Yeah. And in public health and healthcare delivery and improving uh, access to care, and reducing cost of care, improving quality of care. And so that really kind of just reemphasized to, to me, at least personally, we need to be advocates uh, for our role. When I became here, uh, you know, Dean in 2013, really was kind of blessed because we already had some faculty leaders that had that same vision. Mike Doherty, who's our director of experiential education, he actually has a course that he teaches on advocacy, which is which is fairly unique. And so, you know, as part of that course, we kind of have a steady stream of politicians that come to the college. So they're exposed to our students and our students that are exposed to politicians and can ask them kind of tough questions in the safe confine of a classroom that's not being recorded. Uh, <laughs> we also have group group projects as part of that class. And what's really cool, those group projects are real meaningful things. So Dr. Doherty really encourages our students, you know, find a healthcare issue you're passionate about that requires some sort of legislative change and then propose solutions. And we've had some really cool success over the years. We had one, the part of the one that really stands out, this is about four years ago now, it was a group project. The students felt it was not fair that in the state of Ohio that pharmacists could immunize everyone, but if you're a pharmacy student, a pharmacy intern, you could only immunize adults. And so they did a lot of kind of looking at other states that had that requirement, kind of got the attention of OPA. OPA kind of worked with them to craft a a bill. They found sponsors, uh, bipartisan support. And uh, that actually ended up going all the way and was signed by Governor, uh, at that time, Governor Kasich. What was really cool about that, Eric, is that that was signed into law before those students actually graduated. Oh, that's awesome. Um, Yeah. And so here you have, you know, pharmacy students actually causing change, a whole new health policy before they even entered practice. So to me, that, that again, just kind of shows the, the impact of power of advocacy. It was kind of interesting, too. About two years after that, I was in a forum with a state senator, uh, actually from, from up near Cleveland area, uh, sorry, he was state rep, not senator, state rep Ramos, and uh, he was asked directly why he voted in favor of that. And he said, you know, it wasn't so much that the students testified in the Senate. It wasn't so much that they were arguing that uh, it improves access to care. One of our students, who's originally from Kentucky, said that Kentucky had that ability. And she was looking at returning to Kentucky because their pharmacists could do more. And so at that point, he said for him, it became more of a human resource issue in that, you know, we don't want to lose the best and brightest pharmacy students to other states. We want to keep them here. And so, you know, I I think sometimes uh, when we think of advocacy, sometimes we wonder, you know, at the end of the day, do we really, can we really impact things? And I'm convinced that for sure, pharmacists who know what they're doing, who convey the right messages, we can really change things. And again, in some cases, students can do that before they graduate. Yeah. And I think you you unpacked a lot there that I, I really am a huge fan of. The one thing I really liked you said was passion. I think no matter where you go in pharmacy, you have to have a passion for it or you will get burned out. We're yeah, seeing yeah. we're seeing a lot of factors with that with not just pharmacists, with all healthcare professionals, whether it be nurses, doctors, what have you, where they're experiencing a lot of burnout these days because of the demands placed on them. But if you're passionate about something, it's a lot less likely you're going to burn out about it because you care your heart's in the right place with it. Exactly. I, I think that's an awesome yeah. point there. Also, the advocacy class, I need to make sure that you get that to every dean around the United States. <laughs> I don't know what, what other schools do exactly. I know we did not have that when I went to Toledo. They might have that now. But I think that that's something that we definitely need to do everywhere. 
And I like the fact you brought that students are change agents. I know a lot of times as pharmacists, we kind of like, oh, you're just a student, you're just a student. But they bring that outsider view and they're not jaded by 10, 15, 20 years of experiences that make them think inside a certain set criteria or set box. So I think that that's that's awesome. I think, yeah, you've nailed it. And it was interesting because one of our students, her name was Erin Rogers, again, the student originally from Kentucky. She actually, she's back there at Kentucky working now. She did testify in the state Senate in Columbus about this. And I think it's really powerful when a student kind of has the guts, the charisma, the poise to testify. And that definitely got the attention of, of the political leaders. Oh, yeah. It's not exactly the least intimidating situation to go up there and speak <laughs> right. to any sort of state legislators. You're, you're at a podium and a microphone. They're all staring at you. There's cameras <laughs> exactly. on you. It's probably way worse than presenting in any sort of class you can ever experience. <laughs> That's true. It kind of makes group projects after that pretty easy after, uh, after that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. The other thing you mentioned was that you were one of the only pharmacists in rural health. Given how much independent pharmacies impact things like mm-hmm. rural health because they provide access and all the questions they can answer and services they can provide, how do you think pharmacists could get more involved in that? Yeah, you know, there's an interest because often what, it, there's nothing wrong with this, but but usually when pharmacists get involved in a professional organization, it's, you know, a pharmacy organization. So something like APHA, ASHP, OPA, what you know, state, a national. And again, there's nothing wrong for that. There's definitely a role. But I think it's especially powerful when pharmacists are involved in kind of broader organizations. So for rural health, for example, the National Rural Health Association is the, you know, they have 22,000 members. It's really the national group that advocates for access to rural care and against hospitals and pharmacies clothing, closing. Sadly, there's there's actually very few pharmacists that are really involved in the National Rural Health Association. And again, if you think about it, do pharmacists have a critical role in rural health? For sure. I grew up in a small town of 7,000 people in uh, Nova Scotia, Canada. And so I've seen firsthand the role that pharmacists play in small communities. And again, I think that's, you asked kind of what, what could pharmacists in rural communities do? I think one thing is to make sure that they're working with a group like the National Rural Health Association, which already has kind of the advocacy lobbying infrastructure in place, uh, great contacts in D.C. and others. But really, again, pharmacists need to get plugged into that and to make sure that we're part of the solution for rural health, uh, part of the answers to, to improving care. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure they'd love to have us on there, especially some of these places that can independents who can change their practice almost on a dime to fit needs would be plug something right in there. So I obviously love seeing people like you who are deans taking very active stance with political leaders. One, because it it makes you a role model for your students. And when you're a dean, you have hundreds, if not, I don't know, some colleges might have a thousand students in there. So I think that's super important. Why do you think it's important for an academic like yourself to take a lead and meet with leaders at a time like this in, in pharmacy or in politics? Yeah, I kind of like you alluded to, you know, certainly as, as a dean, I, you kind of realize that part, it goes with part of the territory that, you know, you hopefully are being a good role model, exemplifying that. And hopefully, you know, I, I have to think, you know, when I was a student, I would never have thought of why would I want to meet political leaders or, or anything. But those interactions, I think, are critical. The other part to think about, too, and this is a different way of kind of looking at it is all the the people that make decisions that impact us as a profession. So those, those would be elected officials, state bureaucrats, those that work you know, in PBMs, those that work um, in health plans. Most of them are patients too. And most of them, their, their primary perception of what pharmacists do is are from their own interactions with their own local pharmacists. So if we're advocating for pharmacy to do something and they never see their pharmacists do it, 
that's probably where part of the disconnect is. And, I, and I, that's also kind of hit me growing up. I worked as a pharmacy student in a small independent pharmacy uh, in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, Canada. And I remember our local, kind of, kind of the Canadian equivalent of, of congressman, he was a customer in our pharmacy. And it was a great pharmacy. I learned a lot, a lot of respect for the staff there. But they, you know, if I look back now, they really weren't providing pharmaceutical care. They really weren't providing cognitive services. They were doing a great job filling prescriptions. And so I'm pretty sure that that elected official, he knew the pharmacists, but he never really saw them do what they could do. And so if you think about it, if he's back now in a legislature built a, voting on a bill, he's reflecting back on those interactions with, with the pharmacists. So to me, that that's a big piece of it, is that each of us, whether you're comfortable, if you're, whether you're an introvert or extrovert and comfortable uh, interacting with politicians, we can each play a role in how we deliver care in our own practice. Especially someone who works retail like myself, you never know who's coming yeah. to the door. You never know, right? Yeah, not that we treat them differently, but the fact is you just never know what impact that patient might have beyond just being, of course, a patient. I've had celebrities come in. I've had politicians come in, some some high-ranking politicians yeah. come in. And the impact that you can have just by you know helping everyone, doing the best of your ability to everyone, obviously that means they'll translate when they come in. They're getting that experience too and can really go pretty far. Exactly, yeah. So one of the things I thought was interesting was you actually had a meeting with our governor here in Ohio, Governor DeWine. Mm -hmm. Can you discuss kind of what that conversation was around and what all you talked about with him? Yeah, there's no no security clearance or anything, so I think I'm good to share <laughs> on your podcast. Again, it kind of shows that sometimes in life doesn't turn out the way you expected. So I was invited by a board of university trustees to attend kind of a small dinner event of about 20 people with, with the governor that she was hosting in her home. Really, she asked me, not from a political perspective, but because I co-chair our university's opioid task force. And so she knew that's an area of interest of the governor. And so she invited me, um, I, I think, primarily because of that reason. It was interesting because I got there a bit early. And so as I walked in, the governor was just finishing a conversation with one other person. And because I got there early, there was no one else there. And so really his staff person kind of then directed him to talk to me. And we had, like, it seemed like it probably about a 10-minute conversation. It just seemed to go on forever, which was a good thing. I was expecting, you know, that had maybe 20 seconds of, like, kind of more of a formal, you know, formal kind of courtesy kind of thing, but never, like, a 10-minute in-depth conversation. And he seemed very well-informed. We talked about provider status, the importance of implementation. Obviously, the opioid crisis is something that he's very passionate about, so we talked in detail uh, about that. And it really turned out to be, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not sure how much impact I made, but I left that conversation like, wow, you know, again, that's another reason just to be prepared. You just never know. It went from my expectation of getting 30 seconds to this very long, in-depth uh, conversation. You know, just from my own perspective, and I, obviously I shared with him that I was in state government in Arizona, whether it's a governor, whether it's a you know, senator or congressman, if I think about government and kind of their interactions with pharmacy in healthcare, usually, regardless of political party, there's really three key things that they're interested in. And uh, again, depending on the on the person's background or the political party, the three could be in different order. But there's always three things when we're talking about healthcare. And the first is access to care. They want to make sure that uh, certainly that remains a challenge in this country where there's oh, yeah. not you know one national insurance plan that covers everyone. So access to care is. Is definitely uh, one issue. The second would be quality or safety of care, and certainly you know, whether that's errors or just wait times or you know infection rates, whatever qualities one. And then the third one would be cost of care. So usually when I'm talking, whether it's with the governor or another elected official, 
it's trying to frame our issues that we care about as a profession in those three buckets. And if you can do something as a pharmacist that impacts all three, that's the best case scenario. So if we have something that we can do that improves access to care, improves quality, reduces cost of care, you definitely have that person's attention. Now, that's not always possible. Sometimes you can only hit one or two of those. But to me, that's usually, uh, I find it's more effective to frame the discussion in those those buckets. They may not, may not be familiar with the specific issues of, of pharmacy, but when you frame it as an access issue, as a quality issue, or something that can lower costs, you, you definitely get their attention. It's interesting, just as a follow-up, we're um, the, the uh, seven pharmacy deans in Ohio, we're actually meeting with the governor in his office for an hour later in February. And, and part of it is, is to discuss kind of the, these issues uh, as a follow-up. So, you know, obviously really pleased that he's open to meeting with us and looking forward to seeing uh, you know, where, where that discussion goes as well. I think that's I think that's awesome that we have a governor in our state that is that open to meeting with yeah. some of the academics first off. But I really like the way you phrase that. If there's three talking points you need to keep in mind as a pharmacist, yep. it's all about the patients and what we can yes. do to help the patients. Yep. It's access, it's quality, and it's cost or expense. And I think right. that really shows all the way up to the federal level because right now they're talking about reimbursement rates, I think, for some of the providers and cutting that to help reduce costs because I saw a lot of physicians and people like that on Twitter and social media kind of mm-hmm. saying how we shouldn't have to take a pay cut. It's the administrators. <laughs> and they yeah, immediately right. threw them under yeah. the bus. But <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting that you brought that up because that's that's the same debate they're having is we provide quality, we, we need to provide access, and you know, we do what we can to keep costs down. It's not us, it's somebody else. So yeah. I think that's key as a pharmacist when you're talking with them. You said you had about 10 minutes. Did you kind of get any solutions to him about the opioid crisis or did, did he provide you any feedback on what you presented to him? Yeah, you know, he's definitely very well informed about the opioid crisis. Uh, you know, he was the attorney general before becoming governor. He's done, done a lot of things, even his first few months um, last year of, of his administration related to the opioid crisis. He actually kind of reformed kind of the state government apparatus and created it's not really a new state agency, but something called Recovery Ohio. That's a really centralizing and doing everything related to the opioid crisis. So he actually appointed someone that worked with him in the attorney general's office. Her name's Alicia Nelson. So I met with her in so it was April last spring in Columbus in the governor's office. Clearly, they already, if you look at the website, a lot of different recommendations already. So he's very engaged and active, very well informed in that. I think for us as pharmacists, sometimes it's, it's challenging to to communicate how, and this may seem, seem like a strange thing to say, but how we can really help because dispensing prescriptions perhaps is not a good way to, to help. We're, we're talking about opioids. So, yeah. and certainly I believe we have a critical role to play. And that was, you know, I think one small thing, this isn't his administration, but that this happened in Ohio is just, you know, with bills that, for example, have allowed pharmacists to dispense naloxone without a prescription. So we actually just had a paper published about two weeks ago in uh, JAMA Network Open. I think because I had the JAMA name, it got a lot of attention. More than, <laughs> more than most of my most of my more than most of my research, it actually was a pretty simple paper in that we really looked at since 2015, when that bill passed and was implemented. Basically, have pharmacists in the state of Ohio dispense more naloxone, and and the answer was resounding yes. The, uh, oh, the yeah. rate of increase was, was over two thousand percent. Oh my god! But again, if, if I think about that, remember we talked about access, quality, and lowering cost of care. 
that nails the access one. So it shows that pharmacists can be part of the solution. You could also argue, too, that is improving the quality of care because obviously, hopefully people that receive naloxone then are using it to you know, prevent or, or to treat overdoses when they happen. But yeah, to answer your question, the governor seemed very, he's passionate about the opioid crisis. That's the other part, too, is, you know, anytime you're talking to an elected official, it's pretty easy to tell from their public record, you know, what yeah. the issues that they're passionate about. And so that's a good starting place. And so I think actually I started that conversation talking about what I'm doing here at UC, uh, co-chairing our opioid task force. And then immediately you've got his attention and, you know, he's engaged in that conversation. Yeah, no, I totally agree. If you just go on their website, usually their state website, yeah. you can see exactly what they care about for senators, governors, anybody. Yeah. With that, you also met with uh, Senator Matt Dolan, the, guy who, yeah. the, the senator who gave us provider status in Ohio. Right. <laughs> what do you see that doing for us in the near and long-term future, and where do you want to see provider status go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that meeting with, with, uh, with the senator was kind of a different meeting than the one with the governor. It was at the same, same Board of Trustees house, though. It was, it was a different event. And so there were probably about 50 you know, politicians there. So I had no idea he was going to be there. And so I just saw him in the crowd. I had a previous meeting with him but a year ago, or probably about two years ago now, actually. It was around the time of you know that, that bill going forward. And so when I saw him in the crowd, this sounds like maybe kind of a sappy thing to say. I just wanted to thank him. Yeah. And I think, you know, politicians sometimes, you know, they have hard, hard jobs as far as different, you know, consistency groups and just other. So it was really just to just to go over and say, I'm, you know, my name's uh, Dean Neil McKinnon here at UC. Probably don't remember, but I met you a couple of years ago. I just want to thank you again for your leadership and provider status and just just to thank you. And you can tell, you know, he just he really appreciated that. And I don't think politicians get thanked often uh, as well. Um, you touched on the on the critical pieces, you know, it's been passed, but now what? And the implementation is we're, we're really are at a critical stage. So, you know, without kind of, you know, too much technical stuff for listeners on this, especially those maybe not in the state of Ohio, kind of where we are right now, though, is, is really working with state Medicaid to get provider ID numbers for pharmacists. And that's a pretty important step. And so that as well, I think, you know, as I mentioned, the seven deans we're meeting with the governor uh, later this month. Certainly, that's going to be one topic we're talking about. We really need that as far as having ID numbers for each pharmacist in the state so that the billing can happen. I think health plans and insurers like United Healthcare and CareSource are very supportive. They want this to go forward. But really, at this point, the the, um, the stoppage point really less rests with the Department of Medicaid. And so we really need that step. I think once that happens, we're good to go. And it's going to be really exciting in the state. We're going to be leading the nation. But that is a choke point right now. We really need to take care of that. Gotcha. And that's so we can we just need the billing number simply so that we yes. can bill for rapid flu, mm-hmm. rapid strep, rapid whatever. Exactly. Type of tests. exactly. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. You know, the one amazing thing, I, I'm a really big fan of Senator Dolan. I scheduled a meeting with him through, it actually wasn't OPA. I did get some through OPA with him, but through another uh, health organization I was involved in. And like you, I expected to maybe have a five minute sit down with him or yeah. even like a legislative aide at best because, <laughs> you know, they're busy. That can happen. But I went there and believe it or not, he sat down with me, me and him one-on-one for an hour in his office. No way. And no way. You can tell he's a former prosecutor because he was definitely interrogating <laughs> me. But I mean, you know, he should. He's a legislator. He needs to find out, you know, all of my motives and everything. It was actually a bill about vaccinations and, you know, that topic, which obviously is yeah, very contentious. Yeah. And he was grilling me with it. And I thought I'd be pretty good of presenting him with all the black and white evidence that I could. 
but it was really impressive. I just expected maybe five minutes at best. And he gave me, it was pretty much about an hour. In fact, I had to drive back up to Cleveland to work that day. I looked at my watch <laughs> and he was like, Oh, do you have to go? And I'm like, well, I can stay for a few minutes. I have to go back to work. And he realized, well, that's a two hour drive. You know, I, I got enough understanding. You can go ahead and head out. I'm yeah, like, well, yeah. thanks for taking the time with me. I really appreciate it. So you never know what you're going to get. And I want to make sure to tell everyone that because you need to come prepared when you come to talk to these people and make sure you've thought everything through very far out so that you can help them understand why this would benefit them and benefit their their constituents. Yeah, I think that's great you shared that, Eric. And certainly, you know, any of your listeners listening in, I think that's a perfect example, almost like, you know, what my situation with the governor we talked about previously, where you thought maybe it was going to be, you know, a very short meeting and it turned out this very in-depth. So you obviously had to be briefed on the on the topic as well. But you know, I'm sure, you know, convinced, you know, that when that hour was up, you know, he left there like, okay, Eric's passionate about this. He cares about patient care. He's really showed me how pharmacists can play a bigger role in immunizations. And I'm sure that's, you know, influence. And then obviously, because he's a, a leader, he would influence other senators uh, as well. Yeah. That being said, kind of moving on a little bit from some of the specific legislators. Yeah. Some of your publications also kind of discuss Canadian pharmacy. And yeah. when you were in Nova Scotia, being how much yes. we've seen with whether it be President Trump trying to sit, have drug importation bills or any other number of senators who are also advocating for a Canada-like system, what do you see that makes pharmacy practice better, worse, or different Canada than we have here in the United States? Yeah, you know, that's a great way to frame it, better, worse, and, and different, because there's probably a bit of all of that uh, <laughs> comparing Canadian pharmacy and, and uh, the U.S. So, so again, um, my background, originally from Canada, I'm a dual citizen and, and living in Canada up until 2011 and uh, still uh, quite involved there. You know, it is, and obviously I want to keep this, you know, for, fairly short for, for your listeners as well. Uh, often you kind of hear the phrase socialized medicine, and that actually is kind of a misnomer. It really kind of doesn't have perhaps socialized, for example, um, it's not like Sweden where all, all pharmacists are employees of the state. Uh, you have independent pharmacies there. You have chain. They, there's actually private insurance for drugs in Canada and public insurance. The kind of the easiest way to think about it, there's 10 provinces in Canada and three territories. So really, each of them are each each of them are kind of like their own HMO. Each of them would would handle drugs a little bit differently. But in what's called the Canada Health Act, this kind of unifying vision for the country, actually prescription drugs outside of institutions are actually not covered under that. And so uh, it's really, again, up to every province. So Ontario would look a little different than Alberta, the Nova Scotia. Now, certainly they all cover seniors because seniors are the main voting block and prescription drugs are important to them. Oh, yeah. But beyond that, it's really so, for example, when I was a professor, I had private insurance through Blue Cross, just like I had private insurance through Anthem uh, here at the University of Cincinnati. If I had to compare kind of community pharmacy practice, a, f- a few big differences, there's no PBMs in Canada. So that's obviously a, a huge difference. Reimbursement rates tend to be things that maybe uh, American pharmacists would, would love, like dispensing fees of uh, 11 $12 uh, or more. So obviously a little different than, you know, 50 cents. That'll help, um, you. That'll help you open up business. That, that definitely <laughs> will, will help you. Payment for cognitive services has been longer established there. So actually the province of Quebec this is crazy. In 1979, implemented payment for cognitive services. And, and one one piece of that, what they call a pharmaceutical opinion, in the province of Quebec, you can actually get paid. It's not, not a huge amount, but for recommending not to fill a prescription. Maybe it's duplicative therapy or the patient doesn't need it or whatever. And so there was actually, since 1979, a mechanism to get paid for that. Most recently, though, I'd say especially in the last five years or so, 
a huge increase in scope of practice and along with that, the ability to bill for services. And that's across both public and private payers. The province of Alberta has been a leader in independent pharmacist prescribing worldwide. And so they have a very set protocol that if you want to become an independent prescriber, you can you can become one. Pretty hmm. much every every province in Canada has extended at least there's prescribing independent again completely independent prescribing for pharmacists for what they often call minor ailments so those would be things like otitis media utis uh, so things like that and we talked earlier about you know cost of care quality of care and access probably the main selling point for pharmacists in canada has been access because there's a most provinces have a shortage of primary care physicians yeah and so physicians actually don't view this as pharmacists encroaching on their turf they actually view it as pharmacists kind of taking care of conditions that are, you know, kind of like UTIs or itis media, so they can focus more on, you know, really acute uh, patients. So that certainly has been part of it. I would say the other area, uh, community practice in Canada's uh, further ahead than the U.S., and this kind of relates to the New York Times <laughs> uh, recent commentary, too, is kind of the area of patient safety and errors. And so Nova Scotia was the first province in Canada in 2010 to implement anonymous mandatory reporting for all community pharmacies. Oh, wow. um, and so that goes to a centralized database. In that case, uh, it's the Institute for Safe Medication Practices, so ISMP Canada. Part of that, there's an annual safety self-assessment that every pharmacy completes. There's a quarterly staff meeting. So a lot of systems, and that has expanded rapidly across the country. Uh, and so pretty much every province now either has it or is working on a reporting system for, for errors. And, and you think about it, that's kind of makes sense because now they can learn from each other when those, when those events happen. Of course, no pharmacist wants to make an error, but we know that they happen. And so this also, I think, shifts it from just being kind of maybe a risk a mitigation system that chains would be using kind of behind the scenes to actually making it public as far as, you know, pharmacies being, you know, saying that these are errors we're making, we're trying to deal with it, we're being responsible and sharing data across uh, across competitors as well. So I would say those are probably some of the major differences, kind of the reimbursement and the expansion of scope of practice, uh, prescribing, and then uh, patient safety as well. Gotcha. Yeah. And Canada, I know some of the pharmacist groups I follow are actually Canadian-based because I want to know what they're what, yeah. What's going on out there? And I actually did hear just this year there might be some start of PBMs moving in on some of their private insurance plans. Yeah, and I'm I was sure like, that's not, not going to be welcomed. Yeah. yeah, I was like, ooh, that's that's a whole nother can of worms. And I will say that their pharmacists are much more united. They actually have some groups like uh, yeah. Pharmacists United for Change that when they're seeing reimbursement discrepancies or things coming up, they're really taking a stand and standing up for themselves. So I think that's mm-hmm. very different than what we see here in a lot of the states where we just kind of go by what our employer does basically. Unless yeah, we're an independent. No, I, I hear you. So one other thing here is obviously Ohio's been in the news for a, a lot of pharmacy stuff, whether it be PBM abuse games, closing independent pharmacies, opioids, like we mentioned earlier. What do you see as the biggest threat to pharmacy, pharmacy and pharmacists when it comes to pharmacy in general and, and the greatest benefit? Yeah, you know, and I've listened to some of your podcasts. I know this is, you know, a great question you ask some folks. You know, this is going to maybe shock you a little bit, Erica, when I kind of say this, but I would say, you know, our biggest threat really is is ourselves. And I'm, you know, saying that certainly as a dean, someone who's a pharmacist, and of course, I, I love pharmacists, but yeah. I have a colleague in, in Canada, Ross Suzuki, he's a pharmacy practice researcher. He has, a, he has also another colleague, Zubin Austin, University of Toronto. And they've done some really interesting work looking at the personality traits of pharmacists. Oh God! And they, yeah, and what they find out, what they in this course, this is this is generalization, so there are exceptions. Is that most pharmacists are task oriented? We don't take risks. We're introverted. 
and we really don't kind of speak up and advocate uh, for, for others. And of course, those traits really serve us well, if you think of prescription accuracy and not making errors, right? all, <laughs> all those things. And it's probably not too surprising that many pharmacists have those. If you think of kind of the, you know, where our profession has come from, where, you know, even like 40 years ago, we weren't supposed to, to counsel patients because we're interfering with a physician-patient oh, relationship. But those, you know, those traits don't work so well if we want people to be innovative, expand the scope of practice, to think, you know, think about new practice models and uh, new new reimbursement models and such. So, I think you know part of it is is even and again, you know, be, being a dean, I'll point the finger at myself. But you know, when we're interviewing students and and such, are we making sure we're really, you know, kind of recruiting the next generation of pharmacists that might look a little different from that? I think every college of pharmacy as well in their curriculum is trying to ensure that we're emphasizing things like entrepreneurship, communication skills, advocacy. Then we talked about Dr. Doherty's uh, course here. You know, how do you be as, how, how do you be as assertive yet professional if you're dealing with a physician who's making a recommendation that you don't agree with? So again, if I think about our, our, our threat, you know, your, your question, our biggest threat, again, I, I kind of point the finger back at ourselves where I think because uh, we, it is a generalization, but overall it's a profession, we don't take risks, we're task-oriented, a lot of us are introverts, then it, again, does not serve us well kind of where our profession's headed. No, I totally agree with that. What do you see as our greatest benefit? Yeah, and this one I would say is actually is, is the same answer ourselves, which may seem like, you know, what are, what are you talking about? You just uh, <laughs> kind of roasted us. Where I think we do have, this is what's really exciting, and obviously you're a clear example of this, Eric. You know, we do have idea champions, others in the profession that, you know, really are changing that mold, right? And it's interesting. I, I worked with a geriatrician in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and he coined this effect. His name was actually Colin Powell. It's not the, not the general, <laughs> but he was a geriatrician, Colin Powell. He was talking to me one day about this effect that he calls the pharmacist narcotic effect. And he said that, you know, for Neil, for, for years in this hospital, this kind of like a Canadian version of a VA, they did not have clinical pharmacists. And he said, you know, myself and the other geriatricians were like, why do we need a pharmacist? We're experts in geriatrics. And they were able to get a grant for two years to recruit a clinical pharmacist to be part of their team. And he said, you know, a lot of my colleagues really were skeptical. You know, again, what, what value would this person add to the team? So they added this, this pharmacist. And over time, you know, he really won the physicians over. They saw the benefit of, you know, pharmacists really using their skills to improve patient care and provide recommendations. By the end of the two years, they were completely convinced. Well, the grant ended. Uh, he left. He moved to Texas. And then the geriatricians went into withdrawal. <laughs> and he said, you know, this is two years later, the same geriatrician saying, you know, how are we going to replace this guy? You know, we need to get another pharmacist uh, to do that. And so that's what I call the, the pharmacist or he should call it the pharmacist narcotic effects. So I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself, Eric, as a narcotic, but I would argue that you are that when physicians really can see what you do in your in your practice, they really can become addicted. And then, of course, if there's a, if that service goes away, that they go into into withdrawal. <laughs> so to me, I think that that is our biggest benefit is ourselves, that when we're truly using the skills that we're trained to do, when we truly work with other health professionals in a patient care, patient team setting, then we're indispensable. We really are. It's just that unfortunately, you know, that happens to be at this point in time, a very small minority of pharmacists that probably can really be in that kind of practice. Ideally, with provider status and other changes we would move to a situation where maybe five, 10 years from now, a majority of pharmacists 
are in those kind of practices. And a majority of physicians have really seen for themselves firsthand what, what pharmacists can do. You know, I just had Sue Paul on and she she yeah, works in that yeah. type of practice and she right. is a huge advocate for it. And she kind of said the same thing. And if I always refer to Twitter because that's kind of a political sphere for when it comes to uh, social media. There seems to be two avenues with prescribers with that. There's either stay in your lane, this isn't your scope yep. of practice, this is mine. Or there's, if you, if it might be a little bit less, but if you dig deeper, there's definitely people who are like, I can't live without them. They saved my butt. We need more of this. <laughs> and it right. seems like, well, wait a minute. Can you two talk and like figure this out so we can figure out that what our role nice. is? Because, because yeah, I've heard that too from friends who work in those settings, whether it be even like an ER or it be inpatient, yep. what have you. The pharmacists who, who are in those settings, one, they generally love their role. And two, the physicians love them in that role. So, I think there just needs, like you said, more exposure to that as well. And maybe we need some more leaders who are willing to take on those roles and some more advocates, as you've alluded to, take on some of those roles. You're right, because there's certainly, as you you know, clearly say, there's some physicians that have yet to buy into that message. I would argue probably most of them have maybe have really never seen what a pharmacist can truly do, right? And so, and I would probably be feel the same way if I were them. You know, why why would a pharmacist want to do these? I've never seen it in my practice. They're trying to encroach on my income or take over my patients. So, part of it, I think, is that firsthand experience uh, is so critical to get the physician buy-in. Yeah, I I haven't driven one, but I kind of compare it to like a Tesla. Why drive yeah. the car if you can have the car help drive itself and you can do some <laughs> other stuff? But that's, there's yeah. a whole safety aspect of that I'm not going to go is. into. Yeah. Um, hey, I know you're, we got to let you loose here soon, but there's two questions I want to ask, ask everyone on the podcast. So I'm going to hop right into them. If you could change one thing about pharmacy overall, what would you change? And I would change, and this may seem like kind of an odd thing to say, given how high we are with, with the most trusted professions list. But the one thing I would change actually is the public's uh, perception of us. And where this kind of comes from, Eric, uh, when I was in the University of Florida as a grad student, one of our professors, her son was in fourth grade at the time, and they were asked to draw a picture in their class of, of what they wanted to be when, when, they, when they grew up. And she had this picture that came from that class, and this one fourth grader wanted to be a pharmacist. And so the picture was this huge counter, and if you think when you were in fourth grade, you were probably smaller, so a pharmacy counter would look taller. Yeah. All these like colored bottles, different shapes and colors, this big balloon coming out saying that will be five dollars with with no pharmacist in the picture. Oh geez. And I was thinking, well, that's probably just a one time thing. And so when I when I moved back to Canada, I actually had some students uh, in some local pharmacies do a coloring contest uh, for kids in their pharmacies. <laughs> and they uh, sent me the pictures and it's amazing how many pictures as well were completely misrepresenting, you know, kind of what pharmacists did. And again, you know, the nice thing that kids, usually they're pretty forward. They'll tell you exactly what they think. (laughs) And so to me, this was an inclination. This is a deeper problem. This is not just like one or two kids. This is something else uh, going on there. And so I think for me, changing the public's perception, almost going back to earlier conversation we had, right, or even myself working as a pharmacy student, having that local politician come in and he never seeing really what pharmacists could do is, is changing that, that perception. You know, my, my wife's an occupational therapist and they're a much younger profession than us. And they've actually accomplished a lot more as far as provider status and billing for services. And I think at the end of the day, it goes to, if you know, if you've ever worked with an OT and they work with people that had strokes or other stuff, yeah. everything goes back to quality of life, activities of daily living. You know, if, you, if you've had a stroke and you can't button your shirt, let's teach you how to do that. If you need help cooking, we'll help you to do that. And so everything goes very practical back to quality of life. I think for pharmacists, we need to ask ourselves, you know, how do we truly improve the quality of life of our patients? So it's probably 
you know, again, not a surprise that many patients really don't understand what we do. So to me, that's, that's the one thing I think we need to change in the, in the, in the profession is the public's per, uh, perception of us. Occupational therapists are amazing. I haven't worked with them, but I have yeah. plenty of friends who either are yeah. or, or have worked with them. But as a pharmacist, going back to that basic of what can I do to even help you button yeah. your shirt better as a great example, what that simple daily task, what can I do to make your daily tasks better? Yeah. And just to add to that, you know, OTs, how they're trained clinically, quite quite different than pharmacists, exactly kind of how you worded that, that's how they start conversations. So basically, like when my when my wife would, for example, see patients, almost the first question she would ask is, you know, what do you want to do together today? So what's important to you? Yeah. And I don't think I've ever heard a pharmacist ask that question. Yeah. And I think a lot of people get hesitant when they ask us that. If I walked up to a patient and go, what do you need from me? Or what yeah. can I help you yeah. with? They go, give me my pills. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or blank stare. Or they'd be like, uh, Eric's crazy. Why? Well, he's never asked me that before. <laughs> yeah. And I, but I think you need to kind of frame the question a little bit better than that, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. 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 Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that because my mom was a pharmacist and I've been in around pharmacy my whole life. So when I was in fourth grade, I actually used to know the codes of the register to help put the money away in the safe <laughs> at the end of the night. Um, awesome. Maybe that was lack of child care. Maybe that was bad parenting. Yeah. But whatever it was, I, I've been exposed to some of that from an early age. So Yeah, that, that's a different podcast. <laughs> awesome. One other thing, if you could change one pharmacy law, federal or state, what would you change? Yeah, and I, I think for, you know, for me would be more whether it's state or federal legislation around kind of errors in reporting. I think, again, the New York Times article recently kind of highlighted, you know, challenges in our profession. I think part of it, and this is, again, kind of pointing the fingers at ourselves as a profession, is that we've kind of hidden that problem. Um, if you think about it, every hospital in this country, anytime a patient falls, there's any kind of error or, or incident that's reported. There's committees that review that community pharmacy in this country really is a black box we don't know and you would think it'd be great to learn from each other so for yeah. example if there was a sound like look alike drug error here in cincinnati that happened yesterday you know for yourself working in the culinary it would be nice for you to know about that you're like okay maybe i should be extra cautious next time i dispense this this medication and so i think again from my Canadian experience I think there's a lot of value in, in that sharing. It's not, not comfortable. It's not easy. I admit it. But I think it's 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 the way to go. Another analogy you know, I, I use, and this is, again, truly Canadian, <laughs> is I often compare uh, pharmacists as, as a hockey goalie in that we're really okay. the last line, last line of defense preventing errors from reaching the patients. And I think what that New York Times article showed is that, you know, if you're, you're a pharmacist doing your job, you're going to stop all those pucks. You're going to stop those errors. But there's a point where there's so many pucks being thrown at you that you just can't stop it. Yeah. And so to me, the workplace conditions is a big part of the, you know, the whole air piece as well. Um, but at the end of the day, we are there. We're the last line of defense um, for our patients pre- preventing errors. And, and the part is, this goes back to the personality thing. We don't brag to our patients like, hey, you wouldn't believe the error I just prevented today or, the, <laughs> or what, what the physician just would have you know, wanted you to have. So we do, we, you know, we're, we're classy, we're, we're humble, we go about our job, we don't brag about that. But truly, we really are the, the hockey goalies. Maybe I need to change that to soccer uh, goalie or something for, for the U.S. But to me, I, I think that's a powerful analogy. You know, it's, it's funny. I'm, I'm not Canadian, but I've used that analogy myself quite a bit. And when I, <laughs> when I do, my techs understand it. So, yeah, and good, good. And, okay. and I, you know, speaking of that, like obviously techs, techs are great. They're, they allow us to do yes. what we do, but they have to help us with that. And so right. many times they'll, I've seen where they fill the wrong NDC, the wrong dose, the wrong yeah. quantity. All those little things are still pucks coming at us that yeah, are, yeah. are huge. 
on top of you know the sig was typed wrong the, it was the wrong patient it was the wrong dose all the other more clinical things that come through as well and i i love your idea about the error reporting because when i worked for a different chain i filled amitriptyline 100 i think it was instead of amitriptyline 10 mm-hmm. it was a nor yeah. it was a nortriptyline i'm forgetting off the top of my head but one of those it was the, the 10 versus 100 so it was, i filled it for 10 times the dose the patient got it never took it brought it back and i was like oh my god that scared the bejesus out of me. I made sure to take extra yeah. time whenever I saw something like that again. But then literally it was two weeks later, the system had an update that if you filled the 100 milligram, a pop-up box said, is this the right dose? It didn't mean 10 milligrams. Oh, interesting. And I was like, from our internal reporting, I'm like, did someone see that and think, hey, to, to yeah. put that in there? Because if so, that was genius that they did because I never made that mistake again, knock on wood. So yeah, awesome. Well, hey, you've been a great guest here, Dean McKinnon. Where can people find you if they want to uh, reach out to you? Yeah, probably the best of social media. So Twitter or Instagram, RxDMac. So R-X-D-E-A-N-M-A-C. And uh, or people can reach out um, RxDMac at uc.edu if they want to reach me by email. But but yeah, uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much as well for just the whole idea of you know this podcast. I think it's definitely fills a void in the profession. And my hope is that this will engage the next generation of pharmacists to really look at advocacy and you know, how we really can foster change in the profession through um, through legislation, through politicians, through government. Clearly, I, I believe there's an uh, important role for pharmacists in all, in all of that. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. And uh, I will say he is a pretty good follow on Twitter if you're listening as well. For <laughs> not just pharmacy, for random thoughts and other things he posts on there too. <laughs> so, hey, thanks again for coming on. Listeners, if you could want to subscribe on any of the podcast platforms, I always appreciate that. Or drop us a rating on any of them as well. Thank you for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.